the old pilot's plain tales. Here we go. Hold him, cowboy. In 1864, the forces of the Confederates and those of the Union were about to meet at the Battle of New Hope Church. The Union Army, under the command of Major General Sherman, was about to face the Confederate Army of the Tennessee, commanded by General Johnson. Sherman was determined to move around Johnson's left flank, but Johnson saw the move coming and shifted his forces to stand in their path. Battle raged, and amongst the gun smoke, the screams of the wounded and dying drifted over new hope. Over a hundred years later, the battle long consigned to the history books, thoughts of fire and death would be gone until the disastrous arrival of Flight 242. Matthew Gilreath is one of our listeners, and he told me about the aircraft that came down only a few miles from his house, scarring both the landscape and the lives of many who live in his small community. Let me take you to 1977, April the 4th to be precise, and let's follow Captain Bill McKenzie, a highly experienced pilot with Southern Airways, and his first officer, ex-Navy pilot Lyman Keel. It had been an early spring day which dawned over Atlanta with mild conditions. It warmed from 60 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 15 to 21 degrees centigrade, by lunchtime, and looked ideal for a day to enjoy the outdoors. However, by early afternoon, a strong cold front was slicing through the southeast across Tennessee and Alabama. The rapid upward motion created by the front and the cold air aloft combined with ample surface warmth and moisture to create an environment ripe for thunderstorms. The area forecast issued by the National Weather Service indicated marginal visual flight rule conditions, visibility 3 to 5 miles in haze and overcast cloud at between 1,000 and 2,000 feet, leading to occasional instrument conditions. The cloud was going to be layered cloud up to 19,000 feet, with scattered thunderstorms reaching up to 35,000 feet. A few severe storms were predicted near the front, with tops to 55,000 feet. The crew came to work around lunchtime to fly their Southern Airways DC-9 from Atlanta to Muscle Shoals and then on to Huntsville. At Muscle Shoals they received several SIGMETs, aviation jargon for significant meteorological information, for their area of flight, including SIGMET Charlie 7 which warned of scattered to numerous thunderstorms developing, occasionally in lines, a few severe with possible tornadoes. They continued on to Huntsville, their last stop, before returning to Atlanta, but the worst weather they had seen so far was some light rain and some light turbulence, nothing really worth mentioning. At Huntsville they stayed in the cockpit for the short turnaround, and their dispatcher got them the weather for Atlanta. There was currently broken cloud at around 2,700 feet, more at 5,000 and complete overcast at 25,000. 
The visibility was five miles, with the wind out of the southwest at 31 gusting to 47 miles an hour. It was basically cloudy, warm and windy conditions. Nothing too much to worry about. What the Met report didn't mention was that a school line had developed, which was showing up on the National Weather Service radar at Athens. Four-tenths of the area was covered, and the echoes were moving east-northeast at 55 knots. The maximum rain returns were near Rome, an area the crew had flown through only two hours earlier without any significant problems, so perhaps they weren't entirely prepared for the dramatic change in conditions. Just before 4pm, Flight 242 departed Huntsville for its final leg back to Atlanta, a mere 30 minutes of flight. It was Lyman's turn to fly the aircraft, so his captain was working the radio. They climbed to 17,000 feet and set course for the short journey. The flight was cleared direct to Rome, and as the radar began to show the heavy weather ahead of them, Bill McKenzie remarked to his first officer, The radar's full of it. Take your pick. Mackenzie's controller told him that his scope was showing heavy precipitation and that the echoes were about five miles ahead of him. We're in the rain right now, came the reply. It doesn't look much heavier than what we're in, does it? The Huntsville departure controller told the crew that he had the weather cutting devices on, a feature that removed some weather from the radar display to make it easier for him to see the aircraft returns. He described what he could see as not a solid mass, but it appeared to be heavier than what they were in right now. The pilots discussed what they could see on their radar, but it was obviously a confusing picture. First Officer Keel remarked, I can't read that. It just looks like rain, Bill. What do you think? There's a hole? There's a hole, his captain remarked. There's a hole right here. That's all I see. Reminding his first officer that their radar had worked well on the previous flights, he added, I believe right straight ahead there. The next few miles is about the best way we can go. Within a couple of minutes, the Huntsville controller handed Flight 242 over to Atlanta Center, and Captain McKenzie's reply perhaps conveyed a little of his concern. Here we go. Hold em, cowboy. Shortly after making contact with Atlanta, the noise of rain was heard on the cockpit voice recorder. Aircraft in the same general area as Flight 242 were reporting their flight conditions. A TWA flight had avoided Rome to the east, and Eastern Airlines to the northwest of Rome advised that their conditions were not too comfortable, but that they didn't get into anything hazardous. Flight 242 remained on course. Another change in frequency, and Flight 242 reported level at 17. Captain McKenzie commented to his first officer, Looks heavy. Nothing going through that. A few seconds later he said, See that? That's a hole, isn't it? His first officer replied. It's worth taking a moment at this point to describe how the radar on this aircraft displayed weather returns and the limitations of the equipment. 
as the NTSB accident report mentions, the aircraft continued on about the same heading for slightly more than one minute following those comments. The flight crew discussed a possible hold. Given the high intensity of precipitation levels of the storm, the aircraft's radar clearly should have shown a contour hole. To explain, whereas modern coloured radar displays can show the subtlety of weather intensity, the old monochromatic displays of the time just showed various shades of green, the darker, the heavier. With contour mode selected, the very heaviest and most dangerous conditions showed as a black hole which would indicate a severe storm. It's worth mentioning that a black area was also the normal indication of clear weather. The radar on the DC-9 would also be suffering from attenuation. Put simply, attenuation weakens the radar's beam downstream of the weather because of absorption and scattering along the path of the radar's beam. The attenuation is severe where the weather is dense and its composition size is large, such as in a severe storm full of heavy rain and hail. The crew drove on into an area that they hoped was clear of weather. Which way do we go? Cross here or go out? shouted Lyman Keel. I don't know how we get through there, Bill. I know, came the reply. You're just going to have to go out. The NTSB report suggests that perhaps the contour hole that they were flying into was distorted and didn't resemble a classic indication. It's possible that the crew were fatigued, having only just met the requirements for rest before the flight and probably having had an inadequate food intake, but... For whatever the reason, the captain says, all clear left, and they begin a left turn. As they do so, the noise becomes intense. A passenger near the rear of the aircraft by an engine watched the hail smashing into the engine's cowling, leaving dents. Turbulence, hail and rain pounded the aircraft. With a loud report, one of the front windshields cracks, and then Lyman shouted, the left engine won't spool, and a few seconds later, the other engine's going too. When the engines fail, electrical power is interrupted and they lose some equipment, but they get a message through to Atlanta Center. Our left engine just cut out. The other engine's going too. Say again, reply Atlanta. Uh, stand by. We just lost both engines, Bill McKenzie replies. They had almost been clear of the vicious storm, but now they're gliding, and unknown to them, their engines are badly damaged and useless. The investigation discovered that torrents of ice and rain that poured into the intakes of both JT-8D engines caused them to surge and stall, and although rotational speed was lost, the engines managed to remain alight. The natural reaction of the pilot when losing speed would be to advance the thrust levers, which would aggravate the situation. The backflow of air caused the low-pressure compressor blades to flex and clash against the guide vanes, causing some to break. 
Subsequent ingestion of those broken parts caused further damage to the compressors and the turbine sections until the engines were no longer capable of producing thrust. Clear of the storm but still in cloud, the 85 passengers and crew on Flight 242 were in a dire situation. They're down to 7,000 feet and the pilots are trying to work the myriad of faults they had when first officer Keel realises that they need an airfield to land at. I'm familiar with Dobbins, he says to his captain. Tell them to give me a vector to Dobbins if they're clear. The controller's answer is to switch them to another frequency. They had to fight to get through the other radio traffic and then pass the message that they had lost both engines and needed vectors to Dobbins. It's 20 miles to the east of them, they're told. They're struggling to find their Dobbins approach plates, restart their ruined engines, fire up their auxiliary power unit, get some flap out, and all the while their precious altitude is bleeding away. In the cabin, the senior flight attendant tries to find out what's going on. She calls her colleagues on the aircraft phone system. Sandy? Yeah. They wouldn't talk to me when I looked in. The whole front windshield is cracked. Okay, so what do we do? Ah, uh, he screamed at me when I opened the door. Just sit down. So I didn't ask him a thing. I don't know the results or anything. The pilots, meanwhile, had inadvertently turned through 180 degrees and realised that they probably won't make it to Dobbins with the height remaining. They asked for a closer airfield. They're 10 miles south of Cartersville and 15 miles west of Dobbins. They turn for Cartersville but have no idea of runway direction or length and they're running out of options. I'm picking out a clear field, says the captain. No, says his first officer. Bill, you've got to find me a highway. Captain Mackenzie spots a highway with no cars. Is it straight? Gill asks. The reply is a terse no. We'll have to take it down, Keel says. Captain Mackenzie makes his final transmission. We're putting it down on the highway. We're down to nothing. In the cabin, the crew have done an excellent job. With no information forthcoming from the pilots, they took it upon themselves to brief all the passengers on an emergency landing and as they see the trees coming up around them, they are shouting, Bend down and grab your ankles! The aircraft lands on a spur of Route 92, the Dallas-Ackworth Highway, right on the yellow line, but the left wing clips roadside poles, and the aircraft begins to veer to the left. It ploughs through the car park of a general store and gas station and breaks up, as it hits trees and other obstacles. Fuel from the shattered wings and the gas station ignites and a fierce fire develops. Only a few hundred folk live in New Hope, but one of them was Sadie Burkhalter. She had just called in her children when she heard a roar that she thought was a twister. Running for the basement with her kids, she was knocked down the last few steps as the roar turned into an explosion. Climbing out and peering through her front door, she saw fire in her yard. It had been turned into a vision of hell. Barefoot and bewildered, survivors were stumbling through the flaming wreckage towards her. 
Some ran around engulfed in flames, others clad in ragged remnants of clothes resembled sleepwalkers. The silence was eerie. They weren't screaming. Barely able to speak, they just pleaded for help. Their stories are a horrific combination of luck and a survival instinct that led them through the wreckage to safety. Not far away, a 71-year-old lady came out of her front door when she heard the noise, only to be struck and killed by an aircraft wheel that had come free from the DC-9. Carving a line of destruction nearly 2,000 feet long through New Hope, Flight 242 struck and killed nine people on the ground, innocently going about their day, including three mothers and their four children in the same car parked in front of the grocery store. Both pilots died, along with 61 of their passengers, and many others were severely injured. Of the cabin crew, the NTSB commented that, despite a complete lack of communication from the flight deck, they, on their own initiative, briefed and prepared the passengers for an emergency landing, including giving the final brace for impact command. The board noted that this contributed to the number of survivors. The board determined that the probable cause of the accident was the loss of thrust from the engines after penetrating an area of severe thunderstorms. They commented on the crew's reliance on their aircraft's radar to attempt to resolve a path through the bad weather and how their dispatcher might have passed up-to-date National Weather Service data to them prior to their departure from Huntsville, but didn't. They also questioned the crew's decision to turn away from Dobbins, which they could have reached, and also the complete lack of training that the pilots had received concerning a total loss of thrust. This was, after all, the very first time that such an event had ever happened to a jet-powered airliner. If you enjoy Plain Tales, please pop over to iTunes and leave a review. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.